part two. Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's all. This is all public. I just don't want to bore your listeners. But I guess, yeah, if you're Laura's, then maybe it's not so boring. Geek it. Okay. All right, we're geeking it. I had expected some degree of lassitude in Charles Benoit, as is commonly seen in litigants. Fighting the government at court is a wearisome task. Canadians have laws that make it hard to challenge the government on its decisions. But a tax is a tax, and there are constitutional rules surrounding the passage of such measures. Toronto Distillery Company's Jesse and Charles are fighting a 140% stocking charge for every bottle of distillate, spirits, or whiskey they sell from their store what was being called a markup by the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, LCBO, and what was being argued as being a legitimate proprietary charge by government. And Charles and Jesse lost on their first attempt at court. You can find all, and I mean all, of the court-related documents on their website, which I've linked to on the blog post that accompanies this podcast episode. But they're not done. They're gearing up for the matter to be heard at the Court of Appeal, and that's scheduled for early December. Between when I recorded this with Charles in early November and now, the Ontario government, no doubt smelling smoke with this markup issue, brought a spirits tax to the legislature. It's called Bill 70, and it's a flatline value-based tax at uh, 61.5%. And no doubt this is a great deal better than the current arbitrary markup scheme that's sat in around 140%. It's also an acknowledgement that Ontario needed to pass this markup to the legislature to make its what may be a tax, constitutional. Now, this is not an admission on the part of the government, but it's certainly an acknowledgement. So, without having won, we Ontarians all owe Charles and Jesse our gratitude for defending the Canadian Constitution. Vigilance. But a 61.5% flat tax on in-store sales presents a hurdle for market distillers still. It's a saddening development from the perspective of the Ontario Craft Distillers Association, and this is particularly so in the face of graduated or marginal rates of taxation based on volume, which we're seeing enacted elsewhere in jurisdictions in Canada and abroad for micro-producers. MPP Tim Hudak has been shopping his legislative approach to a graduated spirit tax bill under the hashtag FreeMyRye. And it's a, uh, an extreme version of the graduated marginal approach that was instituted in BC that we talk about in this podcast, and a different approach to solving this problem of never having passed a spirit tax. I, I really believe in moving away from one-size-fits-all approaches to regulation like this. For small business, a tax like this can present a barrier to entry. There's a lot to be said for making small businesses and entrepreneurship possible, particularly in food businesses, enabling farmers markets, food trucks, cottage food laws, tiered systems of regulation, and so on. Those all help the entrepreneur create proof of concept so they can access financing, grow a business, create jobs, and increase a tax base. These are good things for any province. I'm thrilled to see the progress that Ontario has made on the craft beer front. There's still a lot of work to do in the province from a regulatory perspective. Ontario is far from competitive when compared to other markets in Canada and laughably out of date when compared to craft beer hubs across the U.S. But I'm disappointed to see this flatline approach to distilling taxes. Beer reform affected by government largely used the rationale that craft beer producers lead to the creation of decent jobs in the face of hyper-globalized and aggregated beer sector. But I'm disappointed to see this approach to distillate taxes. Beer reforms affected by the government have largely used the rationale that craft beer producers lead to the creation of decent jobs in the face of a hyper-globalized and aggregated beer sector. In Canada, our major distillers are still domestically operated. 
and there has been no move to ship jobs away or change the status quo. Corby, in Windsor, while owned by the French company Pernod Ricard, has been a major employer in that city and currently employs something in the neighborhood of 300 people. It's operating the largest distilling plant in North America there. Uh, and it would take, I don't even know, 100 Toronto distillery companies to get to that scale. The process of creating distillate involves fewer jobs than the process of creating beer. Compare Corby's 300 employees to the Labatt's Brewery in London, one of six in Canada, which employs around 475 people. But those distillery jobs are still analog jobs and employment opportunities in an economy where many similar positions have all but evaporated. There's got to be room for both. Naturally, there's also got to be a balance between public policy, balancing the books, and giving consumers what they want. The legislatures, they need to balance these three aims. Liquor taxes funded the country until the implementation of income taxes during World War I. Alcohol, frankly, creates a metric ton of problems, often leading to measurable tears in our social fabric. And this is particularly so with respect to spirits. So that there's a difference in approach to policy between spirits and wine and beer is not surprising at all. It's also not surprising that alcohol policy often feels extraordinarily paternalistic. Now, I understand all of that, but when you consider the mischief and the loss of revenue, potentially, that could be created simply by enabling the sale of a limited amount of spirits from the door of a microdistiller, you've got to wonder whether the policy goals, balanced books, the evil of alcohol, and giving the consumer what they want, meets this one-size-fits-all approach to taxation. Uh, Charles asks at the end of this podcast if you feel anywhere from mildly interested to passionate about this topic that you make your voice heard. He asks that you call your MPP, tweet about this, let your elected representatives know how you feel. So uh, we've included some links at the bottom of this blog post accompanying this podcast for you to do that. But that's enough from me. Here's Charles on the Toronto Distillery Company versus the Queen in her right of Ontario, the LCBO, and the AGCO. Enjoy. Talk to us about this court case. You know, we'd spent the first two years just grinding out unaged wheat in 375 milliliter bottles for the LCBO. And frankly, there's not much margin at the LCBO. Uh, there's actually no margin if you're a small grain to glass distiller. Negative margin, we'll say. And... Um, uh, we weren't even running our retail store because there was no point. The, the LCBO still takes all the money, even out of your own retail store. So um, it was really a losing scenario. Uh, it was not good. I mean, we're gonna, you know, people were coming back and being like, oh, I love the NH Wheat. When are you going to do something else? And we're like, oh, my God, it's a, such a lift to get another listing at the LCBO. And, and you know, just so many late, night, uh, late nights just trying to fulfill like thousands of bottles at a time. And then there was like, a friend who was a tax lawyer we were describing the whole process to him and how he's like, wow, they take, you know, you sell a bottle out of your retail store and you would have to pay them all this money. And uh, he was the one that I hadn't heard of uh, Section 53 of the Constitution Act. It's not well covered at law schools. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but he, he had, and uh, he's a, he was a tax lawyer. He went to high school with Jesse and I as well. Uh, so we're all high school friends. And um, he was a tax lawyer in Alberta. And... Um, so he, um, yeah, he turned us on to Section 53, and then he's like, you know, I think you really got a case here. Uh, it's, this is, the LCBO is taxing you, and there's nothing in the Liquor Control Act that gives them any kind of taxing authority. So um, that was uh, pretty exciting. 
um, because we desperately needed to shift our model. We were, were not enjoying just being like holed up and done all the wheat and we we're like, okay, I guess we'll try and change the listing to something else. But you know, the, you're, there's no money to be made though. I mean, what's going on? What, I mean, it was really like, we just, this is not what we set out to do. Um, you know, if you were making an artisan uh, jam, <clears throat> uh, you wouldn't, your first stop wouldn't be to go to Bentonville or Consada Pitch Walmart, right? But, right. and deal with that. Um, that's the situation we were in. So, um, we, uh, I mean, this was over many, many months, um, that, uh, he's, we kind of looked into this more and more and, um, felt strongly that, uh, we had a good case. So we brought it with his help. Boy, was it a whirlwind. It still is. It's still ongoing. So the, the LCBO, um, you know, they always, I actually, I'd always, I'd found this strange, uh, coming up from the States. Why are they always talking about markup? What's this markup? Like, why Like why? Were, why are they, they referring to markup all the time? You know, including in Alberta, they still call it markup. Like, industry, you just call it tax. But you right. you notice that the, even like Alberta Liquor, Gaming and Liquor Commission, all of the boards, they all, they never call it a tax. It's always markup. Um, and I had noticed that long before we knew about Section 53. Because in the states, it's just excise tax. Right. The, the federal government has excise tax. The states have excise tax. Um, so the reason is, is turns out, uh, Confederation, um, they knew alcohol revenues were very much on everyone's mind, right? It was alcohol, excise taxes, and customs duties were the two big sources of government revenue. They built this country. That's right. Uh, yeah. And, and famously off Goodrum and Wartz, if you ever do the tour of the distillery district, they'll tell you about how Goodrum and Wartz financed World War One for well, Canada's <laughs> contribution. Uh, so, Thanks for drinking. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but I mean, this was pre-income tax, and so excise taxes and tariffs were, I don't know the data exactly, but from what I've always heard were the lion's share of government revenues. So at Confederation, though, the provinces lost that, and there was kind of a split. Um, the provinces lost the ability to collect either tariffs or excise taxes, which are a form of indirect tax, right? And the provinces can't lay indirect taxes, and, uh, but they, they gained uh, license fees. You know, there was the province of Canada had an excise tax, but when that became the country of Canada, Ontario didn't. And as best I can tell, and I've looked into this quite a bit, um, yeah, there was no the province Ontario uh, from 1867 to Prohibition didn't make money from this. They they made they had revenue from selling saloon and tavern licenses, but they they didn't. There was no taxation of alcohol. They got like the sales tax in the bottle. Then post-prohibition, these liquor uh, boards are created, and uh, and hence the term markup is the, the the all the provinces, including Alberta, their attitude is not well. Oh, no, we're not. We, we don't tax. We don't. We're not taxing alcohol. That'd be unconstitutional. We're just the retailer, and so we're marking up product we own. Um. So uh, very interesting and it's like, like i mean i think it's led to uh, absurd situations i mean in alberta the, the fact that they're still calling i mean they've privatized their system but they're still collecting markup like that can't last they what they should be doing is they pass a, a sales tax but they don't want to do they don't want to pass a sales tax that's applied at the time at the cash register right. uh paid by the customer because then the customer knows exactly how much tax they're paying whereas a markup you kind of you bury it all and oh it costs what it costs don't worry about it don't worry about how much is taxed. So that's what's that's what's that's what's really going on here. They don't want they don't want to pass sales tax because then the tax would be transparent. They like having it markup. It all gets blended in, and customers just sort of grudgingly go with it. 
Um, and it also gives them flexibility with market with attacks. You know, the legislature has to convene and you have to actually they have to vote for it. There's going to be debates and it has to get royal assent. If it's a markup, the province's executive can just do whatever it wants anytime because they notionally own it. It, we, we, I should be clear at this point, we don't dispute at all. Obviously, the LCBO is a market entity. It's a business actor, clearly, yeah. right? They make, they, and um, the, the nice thing about fulfilling them is they cut you a check, right? I mean, they, they, yeah. they purchase the pallet and then they go on and resell it. So they take real business risk and they've got write downs and LCBO is totally legitimate. There's no problem for the province to run a business and collect markup. And under the law, when it does that, that's called a proprietary charge, right? So... Courts have classified the ways that government governments collect revenue. Uh, the obvious one is a tax that we're all familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's user fees, which I think you don't have to be a lawyer to guess what that is. And it's just, uh, you know, you go to a national park and you pay for the parking. That's a user fee. You're just, you know, paying to compensate the government to run the service that it's providing you uh, on, a, on a, you know, much on a, on a fairly strict cost recovery basis. So that's a user fee. Then there's the proprietary charges, which we were just talking about, which, again, straightforward. When the LCBO sells in its stores product that it's uh, sourced from all over the world and paid for, it's a legitimate proprietary charge, which is the same thing as when uh, the government sells uh, timber from Crown Land. That's a proprietary charge. They're not. It's not a tax, clearly. It's not a user fee. The government's openly trying to make money here and that's a fine thing for it to do in the and when it's when it's engaged as in business as a market actor now that now there's this other uh type of government revenue which is a more recent judicial creation and that's the regulatory charge and uh, regulatory charge is similar to user fee but a bit looser so user fee kind of has to be more strictly tied to the cost of service Regulatory charge, there's still supposed to be that nexus, but all of a sudden you can kind of bring in more, you know, broader policies, social um, considerations. So there's all sorts of reasons why, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's very, a regulatory charge is very differential to the government. But uh, there is still some expectation uh, that, you know, it's to cover the cost of something. Now we were at the when we brought our challenge, we were pretty certain uh, that, and as every lawyer we talked to was pretty certain that the Ontario was going to defend the money they were taking from our store as a regulatory charge. Uh, and so, just to uh, clarify how that works, is um, we have a store licensed by the Alcohol and Gaming Commission, not not by the LCBO, but we have an AGCO licensed uh, liquor store to sell the products, the big requirement is, and we support this requirement, um, that they have to be made on site. So we make our spirits on site, we're allowed to sell them. And, um, but one of the requirements the AGCO sets is that every month we have to prepare a return uh, for the LCBO and indicate how many bottles we sold on it. And then there's a formula, a revenue calculating formula that uh, we um, on this form that we enter in and then that calculates how much uh, money we have to pay to the LCBO. Well, what does that sound like? That's exactly how our HST works. Right. Precisely. Right. LCBO is about 126%. HST is 13%. But that's it. It's it's a sales tax. Full stop. Um, the only thing that differentiates it from the HST is uh, that 
before they, you enter into this revenue, revenue collection scheme, uh, there's this contract. It's a default template. It's on our website. You can see it. And um, it uh, creates this uh, notional structure whereby LCBO takes title to everything. We, you know, we, we quote unquote sell it to the LCBO. They, don't, they won't pay us. Right. We'll, we'll sell, we'll, we're supposed to invoice the LCBO, but they won't pay you until you've resold it in turn. Their position is that uh, by doing this contract, um, that gives them title to every, all of our spirits in our store. And then we're just selling them on the LCBO's behalf. Right, so, right. So they create this, this legal fiction that, exactly. that title has been transferred. Yeah. Well, I guess it's not a fiction. If, if title has actually been transferred in some way, it's not registered, it's not in possession, so it's not perfected. But, right. um, but so we'll work on this, this concept. And then after it's sold, they give you a notional commission for sweeping the floors well, and keeping out uh, the lights. I mean, and, you know, I think that they'd actually have a better case. Like, they would have had a better case if that's how it worked. So... Uh, I may have got to be careful here because this case isn't over. But <laughs> if I if I if if I had was designing the LCBO system, okay. this is what I would have done differently. You know, now here I am, I'm being their lawyer for them. Oh my gosh. Uh, so what I would have done is there needs to be some amount of business discretion to make to make this like a bona fide contract. If it was uh, you know 1993 or whenever it was they decided to start allowing this, um, I would have said distillers are free to pitch us on how much pro- product uh, they think they'll need for their store. And you st- start them off small. So what they should have done is the um, we would say to the LCBO, okay, for uh, for November, we anticipate selling 15 cases of whiskey. So we would like to um, transfer 15 cases into uh, our store. Uh, would you please buy them for us and let us resell them? And then the LCBO could have said, "Well, you know, uh, you're pretty young, and so why don't we why don't we start with ten cases? And if ten cases go uh, does well, then uh, December, um, maybe we can talk about fifteen. Right? I mean, they wouldn't want to be stuck with all of your inventory that right. they're taking possession of, and well, they, even if they like, you know, there's a lot of elements to it. Um, but even if they then they're like they cut us a check for it. Like we get to invoice them. And keep in mind the pre the the, the price we charge the LCBO is not it's nothing. It's about twenty five percent of uh, the retail price. So yeah. you know a product retails to the public in Ontario for for um, forty dollars. You know we're looking our shares about twelve. So you know um, the LCBO would if I were, if I'd been them I'd been like okay you know it's, the costs are pretty minimal because we can we can start them off small. We'll cut you a check. Here's a check for your 12 cases wholesale and then you know if we don't sell them they can they could take them they would have the right obviously to take possession and try reselling them in their own stores and so there'd be that bona fide business relationship and we'd be uh we and we would be just uh retailing spirits that the lcbo owned and had acquired title to but they they got a little too greedy in my opinion they um there's none of that and so the commission that you referenced is just it's a step on a calculation but all that happens it's on this one spreadsheet, and I can, I'm happy to put it up and send it to you. Um, there might already be a copy on our website, but it's just there. They send you, they literally send you a Microsoft Excel file, and um, you know there is this one column called 13% commission, which applies after they apply their 140% markup. But it's right. it's just that it's just a column on a spreadsheet that leads you to the final uh, result, which is the LCBO remittance. That's literally what the column is called, and. Um, and not a tax? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's it is a tax, right? It's obviously a tax. Like, so they don't care if we, we could. I could decide tomorrow move in our entire inventory. Like, let's like let's move two thousand cases into our retail store tomorrow. You know, LCBOs just acquired title to. You know, they wouldn't even know. And I can start selling them because they don't. They don't. None of this happens before. It all happens after the fact. At the end of the month, you uh, let them know this is how many bottles you sold, and you send them a check for it. So it's not. I don't see how you can call this like a real contract or proprietary charge. Now, at the trial level, you get thirty pages right in your uh, factum, and so when we had to, we felt we had to, we went through user fees. And regulatory charges, we devoted the most to it, and that's where we got into all these social things. And, and, and then initially, like this was when I was looking abstractly at what the argument was, I had come to it from a, a regulatory charge standpoint as mm-hmm. well. Like I encounter regulatory charges frequently, and traditionally we're very much a, a cost recovery basis, but but now that's been expanded to accomplish public policy goals as well, right? And in alcohol, like this is an area that's fraught with public policy issues. I mean, it's why we have a government regulator and and a government at the LCBO to begin with, right? Protecting ourselves from from this thing that can cause destruction or social ills. Right, so that's exactly how we thought we were gonna go, they were gonna go as well. What we ended up learning at the trial level was that they don't wanna make that at all. There was quoted in uh, the, there's a Financial Post columnist there, and like this one social, like a couple of social things got quoted because that's what everyone's expecting, right? And mm-hmm. and the, the judge's response, Judge Justice Actar's response was actually, um, he was he was actually he, he at the beginning of the trial he was all surprised. He, he he clarified with the respondents, the LCBO, AGCO, and Attorney General lawyer, it's like you're sure you don't want to defend this as a regulatory charge. You're sure you only <laughs> want to use proprietary charge. Absolutely, yes, they were all adamant about that. And then so later when the LCBO's counsel started talking about uh, social things, Justice Akhtar, to his credit, was like, why are you talking to me about this? You, you, you ruled out regulatory charge, so this is what social is completely irrelevant here. So I appreciated that he said that, uh, and that was correct. So I, that, we, the, obviously the trial judgment didn't end up going our way. The uh, justice said, you know, look, you've signed a contract, so that's it, proprietary charge. Now... I think that there was an error of law made. The Supreme Court has said that you got to do a pith and substance analysis. Well, the Justice Sektar's reasons for judgment do not even mention the words pith and substance. Uh, it's He didn't do it. He's just like, he signed a contract, that's the end of it. Uh, I think, uh, and there's Supreme Court jurisprudence that specifically says, you know, don't get caught up in the form of the transaction, but look to the substance of the transaction, right? So this has the, there's the, the window dressing of a contract, but is there is there really mutual consideration is there like is, is, is this really what's going on right. or is the pith and substance actually this is revenue collection full stop it's interesting having denied they don't want to they don't want it to be entertained as a regulatory charge so we can just leave all that behind for a proprietary charge it's like well is this it's just about revenue generation and well what but is this is this is this is the relationship between our retail store and the LCBO where we file a monthly return and send them a check and that's the end of it. Is that more similar to a tax or is it more similar to um, what the LCBO's real business is, which is buying and selling uh, alcohol from all over the world in a competitive market? Well, I think, you know, it's, for us, it comes down to discretion. That's the key word. And this is going to be the focus of our appeal. Just didn't, you know, we weren't anticipating proprietary charge at the trial court, but on appeal, uh, the discretion is what it comes down to. The um, LCBO does not operate any discretion whatsoever. 
in um, its dealings with us. It's not a bona fide business transaction. This is just revenue collection. This isn't pith and substance tax. How would this compare to to selling in the United States? But these these charges that are brought on to you. So if you are if you're a producer and you're selling to a, a distributor in the U.S., they nail you with crazy charges as well on top and above and beyond excise taxes. This is like this is sui generis, unique to to the Ontario or the Canadian experience, the Canadian Ontario experience. Uh, well, uh, there's a lot of control. I think there's I believe there's 21 control states in America. So um, Pennsylvania, I think, is the biggest. Virginia is another big one. So and I I, I don't have any experience with those control boards. So um, I can't speak to it. I will say that, um, you know, it's nice that they have legislated excise taxes, right? You're very clear about what portion is tax. So I think that's probably, again, I can't speak to every control state, but um, this whole like, oh, Ontario doesn't collect any taxes from spirits. It's just this markup, like what, what is This is 126% markup. I mean, well, that's right. I mean, that's just it. it it's so clearly taxed. So that's another point we want to make to the court is, um, you know, if they want to rule against us, it's then they've written themselves out of a job. You know, there's all this Section 53 jurisprudence about user fees and regulatory charges. Well, if all the government has to do, if all a government has to do is get you to sign up your John Hancock on a piece of paper um, that's stylized as a contract, no problem. All the judicial restraints on user fees and regulatory charges, Section 53, throw them out the window. They're garbage. So the court, if they upheld the uh, Superior Court's judgment, would be writing themselves out of a job. And um, and just as bad, they'd be writing our Legislative Assembly out of a job. So, I mean, this is what we, you know, we had a rebellion in, in Ontario about this uh, about 200 years ago, right? I mean, we... So nothing, we're back to the old days of the family compact. Executive council, just do whatever you want. Tax, it's okay. Force them to put their name down on a piece of paper to, for the right to do business, that's fine. It doesn't matter. You can get revenue from that. Court's not going to second guess you if you got a, oh, you have a, you have a contract. Well, okay. Yeah, that you were forced to sign to do your job. Yeah. So I actually see this as a constitutional crisis for Canada, to put it mildly. Um, but uh, yeah, no, and we... and. America is obviously it's a, it's with they don't have the states don't have the same limits on taxation that the provinces do so they just but I guess it's a good thing because they just levy clean taxes with our distributor in Washington DC they're a small business we're a small business retailers are small businesses we have a distributor we can also sell directly to the retailers small businesses work great with small businesses we do deals over handshakes we get it done there's not a, like a ton of bureaucracy yeah, that, that, I think that's what we're really missing in Ontario um, is a small business ecosystem in the beverage alcohol sector. Well, I mean, clearly the pressure is on to change, right? So we've seen immense pressure on the beer store. We've seen beer being brought into grocery stores. It's not just Labatt's and Molson's products. It's uh, well for the time being. For the, <laughs> I'm pretty skeptical about that. I think I, that that makes me really pessimistic about the future and about our luck with a spirits tax too. I mean, I, the, the province has already said they're gonna after the trial judgment they did say they would do a spirits tax. So, but I'm I'm starting to get a little pessimistic. They they set it up in a way for grocers can't make money selling beer, and every grocer in Ontario will tell you that. And I and I think there's been articles publicly. You know, just take my word for it. So they can't, they're not making any money selling beer. They do it because they want to offer that convenience, but. They're not making selling money selling the beer. Well, they're going to get tired of not making money eventually, right? It's a lot of it's a beer takes up space. Yep. And so uh, what's going to happen? Well, 
they're going to look to make money through listing fees, which, I mean, I'm sure you know, like Loblaws, right? I mean, it, you, it's not just free to get your product in there. There's, they, there's a, often a lot of upfront expenditure from the producer. You know, consumers have a demonstrated demand for craft beer. They want to buy local. They want to buy from small brewers. I mean, maybe some will just be committed to it. Um, there's a IGA in Gatineau, IGA Famichal. That, I mean, I know the owner, and he's just so committed to craft beer that he doesn't care what kind of listing fees big brewers uh, come in with. He's going to sell craft beer. So that, if that happens, that's awesome. But again, it's thanks to the Quebec small business ecosystem. I mean, he's, he, he operates one IGA. He's He's a small business person. And so we get those kind of relationships where we can have success together because he wants to differentiate himself from uh, other retailers. Well, if you're Loblaws, you're not into that. You are into charging upfront listing fees. And so uh, uh, I'm I'm skeptical about whether that's going to be a good outlet for small brewers who will never be able to compete with the kind of upfront cash incentives that... um, Molson or Labatt are able to offer uh, to uh, buy that shelf space. So in the same way, there's been some movement or some inklings of movement in how Ontario deals with distillers. In the the budget update this year, in 20, early yeah. 2016? Well, Is that right? A couple of things happened. The Premier's Council, uh, in their report, made some recommendations for spirits, like including that we should be able to sell to bars or restaurants, which um, would be nice, but... yeah. There's been no action on that. And that's really a frustrating one, too, because we're all, legally, we're already allowed to sell the bars and restaurants. The no law needs to be amended. No reg- regulation needs to be amended because we're considered a government store. And so under the Liquor License Act, bars and restaurants can buy from us. So it's legal for them to buy from us. What's stopping us from selling to them is that same LCBO contract, which has, a, I think it's paragraph 3.5, says you can sell to the public. And you can, and we can sell to uh, SOP, special occasion permit holders, but we cannot sell to licensees. So if we were to do that, we'd be breaking a term in our contract. But um, that's something they could fix this afternoon. Like if they heard this podcast, they could say that's not right. Simple to fix. Yeah. Email out uh, to all the uh, signatory, everyone, you know, the maybe two dozen now businesses that have a one of these contracts, and just say, you know what, forget about paragraph three point five. We're good on that done we open up a whole new local business channel but yeah that was recommended i guess back in february whenever it was it was before the budget Mm -hmm. and um no movement on that Hmm. Uh, anything else proposed or any any sort of sense of movement well yeah and then so we we put a blog post on our website saying you know maybe losing the battle but winning the war and the the province said uh they're going to replace the uh markup and commission structure with a spirits tax a distillery retail store sales tax similar to they did as uh, they did in 2010 with wine and beer so it's not a tax that would apply in the lcbo because that you're kind of getting into like indirect taxes there but if you study the wine and beer tax it's got all these bizarre things that wouldn't make any sense to you if you didn't know about this limit on indirect taxes like you're required to display this poster visible to customers showing them the tax uh, so it's you know, it's direct. You know, you have the poster up there. It's so weird. But um, if you're a constitutional nerd uh, like I am, it's pretty interesting. You walk in, and you're like, oh, okay, that's because the decision is made in 1867. That's we have this poster up now. Yeah, and, and the budget highlights. So that was after the premier's advisories council's recommendation. They said they're going to replace this uh, uh, phony markup and commission arrangement with an actual distillery store sales tax. So they call it spirits tax. You know, in my more optimistic days, I thought that that's going to be 
terrific. And I, I mean, I still do think it's going to be terrific. Surely when our elected representatives vote for it, they're going to, they would want to vote for something reasonable. So something similar to a, a graduated taxation level like our income tax or BC's um, uh, craft spirits policy. Uh, I'm a bit more pessimistic now. Uh, it's clearer to me now. Taxes, it's not like the United States so much where uh, an elected representative introduces a tax bill. You know, taxes in Canada have to actually come from the crown. And so it, it comes top, it's a top-down thing. And so it gets introduced by cabinet and then government can whip its MPPs to vote in favor of that. So right. might, um, but I, I'm, I'm trying not to be, I'm really trying to be uh, optimistic that the spirits tax they'll pass will be, will contemplate small distillers uh, that will they'll follow what a lot of other Canadian provinces have done now in terms of having a graduated rate uh, with so many states done. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. Um, but in the budget, if you actually look at what they said, they said that, you know, we're not, they didn't say we're actually going to come up with a wonderful graduated spirits tax. They said we're going to replace the, the markup structure with a tax. So um, if, if at the end of the day, the legislature does vote for 126% distillery store retail tax, I will totally accept that, admit defeat, like comprehensive defeat. I mean, victory in that we got a, this fake markup thing replaced with a tax. And, and that does give distillers more protection because if that tax, if they wanted to raise that in the future... It needs to go back in front of that. It has to go back to the house, right? That's a really important protection. Whereas uh, with the contract model, we could be told overnight, jack up your prices 200%. Yeah, so it will it will be a victory in that sense, but it'll be a defeat in the sense that there's no um, there's just no room for small business in in spirits in Ontario, and we'll have a Minister Sousa going out of business sale if they have that 126 percent spirits tax. I hope they don't. Um, I uh, you know the craft beer is tax is great. It's great because it's uh, got thresholds for smaller uh, brewers and it's flat. So this is a really key component. Um, if you want to, like a lager is an inexpensive type of beer to make. So if you want to brew a lager, pretty straightforward, not cost intensive for the brewer. Um, but that lager, you pay, you're pay. you going to pay the same flat tax because it's just based on the liters of beer, regardless of the style of beer. So you pay the flat tax as like an expensive um, barrel-aged barley wine. Which is like right. way harder to brew, and then uh, and you use you know bur- use bourbon barrel for six months. The brewer is free. The craft brewer is free to invest as much as they want um, in their beer in terms of finer ingredients and labor. Yeah. Dry hopping the hell out of something. It's exactly. expensive, and they can so they can do all of that, and the taxes don't go up, right? They're not punished for doing that. Yeah. But with the hundred and twenty six percent. Uh, tax ad valorem tax we pay so ad valorem is like a fancy word we, I, I, just, I know it from the, my customs days we always use that word but an ad valorem is uh, it's like HST's ad valorem it's not tied to a um, a unit like uh, okay. a dollar a liter or whatever right? right it's based on whatever we happen to charge well if you're a small distiller or any small producer by definition you don't have any economies of scale so already it's more expensive for you to make things and then, you know, we want to differentiate ourselves by making a better product. You know, we're not chasing, we're not, we don't have the same chasing margin pressure that, um, you know, a publicly traded company might have. So, you know, we, we want to use nicer ingredients and like really, um, and uh, focus on offering quality offerings like that. But if uh, with 120% ad valorem tax, whether it's in the form of a tax or a markup, you can't. Every dollar that you have to add to your cost of goods sold 
winds up in three to four dollars being added to the retail price. So that's really crushing. Um, so if we can, if the legislature can uh, do what it uh, for small distillers, what it did for small brewers, and pass a um, you know legislated uh, flat tax based on liters of beer sold as opposed to the cost of the brewer, we can have the exact same kind of tremendous success that we've seen in craft beer happen in craft spirits uh, in Ontario. Um, so I really hope uh, our, any of our elected representatives are listening to that. Well, and then let's, let's turn it to our listeners too. How can we help? Uh, okay, at this point, very much um, write your MPP. Please, please, please write your MPP. Um, that's what it's all about at this point. They've said there's going to be a legislative spirits tax coming down uh, the pipes. Uh, I think that there's a good chance if you look at what was done with wine and beer, like it's not going to be a standalone bill. Like here's the distillery tax. Let's debate it today. It's going to be part of a much larger package. Um, and so it might go unnoticed by a lot of uh, elected legislators. You know, you could see how if they use the same language as they did in the budget highlights document, it gets branded this 126% tax We'll just get branded as oh uh, don't don't worry about this this is just a, a n- revenue neutral replacement for the yes. existing yeah no big deal here no big here no big deal actually it's going to put a lot of us out of business so writing MPPs to say you know um, and we'll we've got some of this on our website uh, TorontoStory.ca you can click on the our constitutional fight tab and we'll have a link there to things that you can say to your MPP. But really just emphasizing to them, you know, we know the government has set a spirits tax is coming down the pipe. Uh, we, I'm, I'm really implore, you know, I, I appreciate, hopefully maybe that you have a local distiller already uh, in your city, in your town, um, or you, you're, you've got a favorite one that you've been able to try and you want to support them, reference them and say, you know, they really depend on their stores to get things to market, right? The LCBO, maybe they give you one listing, maybe they give you two. And those, but like, if if we're ever going to have the kind of innovation, distilleries need to be able to have stores that they can run where they can um, try selling things that they make in small batches. Uh, the batches are too small for the LCBO, and uh, they, re- they and that has to they have to be able to like cover their overhead with that. So that's why we need a graduated spirits tax, and MPPs need to hopefully get that message. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll do what we can. The appeal is coming up in December. December 15th, that's right. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This has been uh, terrific, actually. I really appreciated this. So thank you so much for taking the time and to your listeners for hearing me out here. And I hope they learned something and, uh, and I hope they'll visit their local distiller. That was Charles Benoit of the Toronto Distillery Company. I'll be back in January 2017 with the second half of season two. Until then, take care.